Hi, I'm Jay John. Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Graham Kendrick, a trailblazer in Christian worship. Graham Kendrick, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's great. Graham, I I honestly think I've known you for 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) It must be. I mean, but you've been, um, I mean, all of life is ministry. And I'm I'm one of these people that always believes it doesn't matter what your calling in life is, you're in ministry. But there's ministry, ministry. But you've been in ministry for how long? Oh my goodness. Uh, I think I was, I was 22 years old. I yeah. left college and grabbed my guitar, took to the road for a gap year. I'm still in the gap year. Still in the I gap think year. I 1972, I yeah. think it was. Yeah. So yeah. that's 48 years. Yes, because I've been in ministry 41 years. So right. you're, you're, you're seven yeah. years ahead of me. Well, it's frightening, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Now, you grew up in a Christian family. Your father was a Baptist minister. That's right. Where was that? Well, uh, that uh, when I was born, he was ministering down in a little village uh, near Northampton, a little place called Blisworth, a uh, lovely little place. So I had my five, first five years there. And then it was on to Essex for a few more years, which pastors typically do. And then to uh, southwest London, uh, where I spent my teenage years. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was life for me. And would you say, Graham, you've always known the Lord? I remember a moment <clears throat> when I must only have been about five years old. Uh, and my mother was reading us a, a bedtime story, myself, my older brother and sister. I remember we were sitting down, it was probably a Sunday evening, my dad was probably preaching at the evening service, you know. And it was a, a little sort of uh, novel where the main character uh, learned about the Christian faith and um, and she got to the chapter where he actually made a commitment to follow Jesus, to believe in all this he had heard. And I remember she closed the book, the chapter, and she said, well, do any of you want to do what the character in the story just did, you know? And I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> That's my mum after all. <laughs> I was five years old. But genuinely, um, and we all went off to different corners of the room and she was wise to make us pray our own prayers. So it wasn't just something put into our mouths, you know. And I remember praying. It was probably the first time I made, I'd be prayed up to bedtime prayers, you know, because I was taught to, you know. But it was probably the first time I consciously talked to God and said, here's me and, you know, I, I believe in you, you know. I can't remember what my words were, but something happened. I mean, really, some, it was like something exploded in my chest. I knew that my prayer had been heard, you know. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, and so I'm a great believer in um, parents teaching their children the faith and just in a wise way at the right time. Absolutely. Encouraging them to, to, to make that, that choice. Uh, and it, so it's, it's, it can be a very real start. Yeah, absolutely. And then in the words of John Wesley, your heart was strangely warmed. Yes. That's a, and, and, and you sensed it. I, I knew, I knew. And I could think myself, even today, if I just sort of close my eyes, I could think myself back to that moment. It made such an impression yes. on me. Um, and of course, you have to build on that. You know, that, 
that was just my moment where, where I realized God was real for me and I could talk to him, you know. But of course, um, you know, I, I, out in school, I just began to discover that most people didn't believe what we believed as a family. And then uh, and you, and you have to defend your faith and you have to, you know, I can remember moments. I was a shy little lad, but I'd been told that you have to stand up for your faith. So I can remember, I mean, literally at one point, I think some teacher um, asking if anyone was a Christian or stand up if you're, if, you, if, if you're a Christian. I remember standing up, you know, I, mean, I think I was about the only one in the class, maybe one other. And, um, and that took courage. Yes, to do that. yes. I, I, perhaps I didn't realise how much courage it was going to need till I'd done it. But um, uh, I'm, it enabled me to nail my colours to the mast. Yes. Um, and that's an important thing because then you learn that you've got to answer questions. Other kids come to you and say, oh, my mum says, or my dad says, or my brother says. And then you, you know, so it's, it's a very good learning experience. To, Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you went on and um, you trained to become a teacher. How did it start that you ended up um, going into a ministry of worship? How did that? My passion was songwriting. You know, once I discovered I could write songs, not saying they're very good ones, but just writing any song, you know, and people saying, oh, that's good. You know, you think, yes, I'm going to be a songwriter. I think I told my mother about when I was about 15 years old, I was going to be a songwriter. I'm sure she nodded sagely and, <laughs> and thought that was a crazy idea. Um, so when, the, when I went to college, I swapped my electric guitar for an acoustic guitar and I, because we didn't have a, ba- a band, I didn't used to sing in the band, but I had no choice. If I wanted anyone to hear my songs, I had to sing them and perform them. So I started writing story songs. Now these were not the praise and worship songs which I'm known for today. Um, there was a lot of them were based on Bible stories, um, and uh, there were all songs I wanted to write. But they also meant that I could earn the right to, uh, to for an audience to hear what I believe, what my faith was. You know, if you sing a song and it's a good enough song and people like it, and it happens to feature some guy called Simon Peter, who was a fisherman who followed yes. Jesus. You know, there's a, there's a whole story in there. Um, and, you know, you earn the right, if you like, to, to say what you believe. Not necessarily publicly, but perhaps afterwards in a conversation. So I was doing that at college and playing in the college folk club occasionally into the Christian Union and, and, and stuff. So by the time I finished my three years at college, uh, I was starting to get invitations to go and sing my songs in various places. Uh, hence, you know, uh, the gap year um, to see how that went. Oh, so initially it was just, oh, well, I'll give it a year and see how, where it takes me. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to confess it was what I really, really wanted to do, but it, it didn't seem practical or people didn't, you know, because no one else was doing this really full time. Uh, but one thing led to another and... Uh, one gap year led to another, and I'm still in the gap year. <laughs> and, but that's what I did that's... for about 12 years. It was singing my songs in a concert setting. Yes. Um, so... So but more singing about Jesus rather than singing to Jesus. Yes, yes. Yes. And singing, you know, if you're a singer-songwriter, you sing about what matters to you. So yes. it's, it's, it's um, you know... 
but a whole chunk of what mattered to me was was my was my faith, you know. So I'd sing a lot about that, and a lot of people would. I'd often go into schools, you know. So maybe an RE teacher would yes. have me come into a school and sing an assembly and go into RE lessons and sing another song and then have a discussion, all that kind of thing. And that led on to me joining a team uh, which worked with local churches, yes. doing that sort of thing. I know, and you, you worked with YWAM, you worked with Youth for Christ, so you worked with a number of different ministries. All, always being connected, yes. yeah, with, with different kinds of, of ministries. Um, but the other thing that was happening when I was in my 20s was there was a whole kind of renewal movement in the churches going on. <clears throat> Um, and in, as part of that, worship was changing. Um, a lot of this movement was about discovering that the Holy Spirit was real. Yeah. You know, and you could actually experience God through the Spirit, you know, a little bit like they did in the Acts of the Apostles. And that was very exciting to me as a young person who hadn't, you know, and grown up in great churches but you didn't really see much of the supernatural. Yes, yes. There wasn't very much of that personal experience. You had to read books, you know, and there were lots of popular books. But I, you know, as a student, I remember thinking, well, it was so exciting to read about this person in the book, but why isn't it happened to me or, or you or us, you know? So my personal search led to an experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit like so many other people. And then you find yourself in a, maybe in a, in, a, in a house, home group, in a house church, and people start singing these simple sort of intimate songs, you know, not, not whole hymns, though that was our background, but this was a kind of intimacy. It was like waiting on God, songs which helped you wait on God. Um, and you're waiting for something to happen, really. You, you're waiting for a deeper experience of God or God's presence or, um, you know, people were learning to use the gifts of the Spirit. Yes. But, but this, the music became that kind of um, instrument for singing your love to God while you waited and prayed and, and so on. And that was quite a different thing in those days. And it was in that context that I started to write a few, uh, yes, a few songs which you could sing communally. So re- really, you you're, you were tr- responding, navigating this new wave of the Holy Spirit and how worship could um, play a significant part, and it did, and worship does. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Look what I found. Oh, March for Jesus. That yeah. is a golden oldie <laughs> little book, isn't it? Oh, dear. Uh, so go on. March, I mean, you can't tell your story, Graham, without telling us a little bit about March for Jesus. Well, yeah. Tell us how did that, again, the relationship, you've got the names listed here. You know, you've got Lynn Green, you've got Roger Forster, <clears throat> you've got Gerald Coates, you've got Graham yeah. Kendrick. Mm-hmm. It's like a band of friends, really. Yeah. And, and the conversation about the mm. gospel and the good news. But then how did it become March for Jesus? Well, um, I try hard to com- compress the story. Well, you're absolutely right that there were several movements and there were lots of relationships and friendships that went on um, between these different movements. Um, and, you know, levels of cooperation 
um, started to to happen, which maybe weren't so typical previously. You know, leaders can be very competitive, apparently. Uh, yes, <laughs> but um, much of that was a whole turning outwards to look at what can we do? How can we see this world change? You know, how can we evangelize our towns and cities? You know, how can we reach out to parts of the world and cultures that don't know, barely know the name of Christ and, and so on? I found myself in one such church in London called the Ichthus Christian Fellowship, um, where I was taken out of some of my com- comfort zones, you know, knocking on doors and giving out leaflets and s- singing on street corners. I thought, ah. Um, not not what I would naturally have enjoyed, but I knew it was it was important to do. Um, so many things flow, flowed into this. Um, uh, there was uh, a guy who was um, worked at Smithfield Meat Market, and this one guy, you know, and he was part of our church. And he had a vision to say, why can't we, you know, Smithfield Meat Market is empty on the Saturday. Why can't we just have a big festival there, you know? And one of our other leaders, John Presdy, was um, close with him and they prayed into this. And then John had this vision of thousands of people um, with banners and praying through the streets of London. Um, And to cut a long story short, that actually happened, right? And they expected maybe, you know, couple of thousand people or I don't know but I think in the end somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people turned turned up. up yeah but in the run-up to that I had been very concerned that this new uh, praise and worship movement which was impacting the churches was locked inside the four walls and I was thinking how do you take the walls off the church how do you take worship on the streets and I'd actually written some songs um, Design for the street. Uh, I took part in something which happened in uh, just kind of improvised praise and prayer march through Soho, uh, which Ichthus and Youth of the Mission and a few others had collaborated to put on. And I just thought, I've got to be there. I was meant to have a night off, but I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, Be there. You've got to be there. So I went there, and out of the, I wouldn't quite call it trauma, but it was, <laughs> you know, Trying to lead worship on the streets is yeah. on the move. Is so I wrote some songs and recorded them, which were designed for the streets. So yes. that was happening, right? And so lots of individual churches have picked up on that. I did a. It was tell what how long ago it was. It was a vinyl album. You know? Yes, so no, I remember. Side one was a was some new worship songs. Side two was this. Praise March, you know, and there was a little booklet how to do a praise march. And to my amazement, because I was almost embarrassed about this thing, because I thought, nobody's going to want to do this, you know. <laughs> but I knew I had to do it. And to my surprise, um, hundreds of churches started to yes. do it. So this was how happening simultaneously. But that first London City March, which started off at Smithfield Meat Market, um, was a one off. But um, a couple of the leaders got together um, some months later and really felt God was saying, you've got to do it again. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that, f- that first one gave you the confidence as well, yes. isn't it? You do, you do one with not too much anticipation and expectation yeah. and God exceeds it. Yes. Uh, yeah. So therefore you thought, well, let's, let's do it again. Absolutely. 
Um, and when it did happen in 87, I think there was, I don't know, 55,000 or 60,000 people processed um, right through the centre of London and passed Houses of Parliament, you know, ended up, I think, at Hyde Park or Trafalgar Square. I can't remember which yes. way it was that year. Yes. Um, and then it started to get noticed uh, in European, other European countries. Um, and, you know, within a few years, this was a phenomenon um, and it it went global, and, it did. and and in South America, it was remarkable. They it's, picked it up. Yeah, I think they think they invented it actually. But they, <laughs> yes, I know. But what? So you know, uh, so it was thousands, and literally tens of thousands, even into the millions, started yeah. going on marches around the world. Yes, eventually. I mean, we we had a Europe wide march in uh, 1994, and then in. 92 rather, and then 94, uh, we had a march which went around all the time zones. So it's like as the sun rises, you know, around the world in the different time zones, marches will pop up all on the same day. Um, and, you know, there were millions of people took millions. took part uh, and many caught the vision, like Brazil in particular, to carry on uh, doing that. And to this day, you know, it... I think it's a public holiday in Sao Paulo. Yes. Um, with, you know, and goodness knows how many on, on, on the streets. Um, so and it is remarkable. As you look back, at, you know, uh, on the global one, uh, as well as the national one, uh, did you feel, looking back now in hindsight, something shifted spiritually? How would you assess oh, yeah. it? Well, I mean, in many ways, it's one of those things which is very hard to assess. Um, you know, you and some of it is subjective. You know, whenever I've been on a march, and, you know, they carry on in some places, and I've been in them in more recent years in other countries. And I, after it, once it gets going, I just get this feeling that something, it's like heaven's come down, yeah. you know? Yeah. Some, the atmosphere has changed, you know? Um and, you know, you get uh, some evidences, of, you hear stories of people's lives that were changed. But I think the main thing is it's mobilizing the church. Um, and it was a moment of mobilization of let's break this fear yeah. of standing up for what we believe and being identified, you know, with a group of people who sometimes get mocked or, or, or whatever. So, you know, once people get on the streets and they, and the, particularly if they're in a local area, they know they might be spotted by neighbours who are going to say, did I see you with that crazy bunch of banner-waving, singing Christians on the streets? Um, but you break that fear and it helps you to another step of maybe sharing with your, with your neighbour. Yes. I do think it made a lot of difference and it had many off uh, spin-offs I know many um, places would have at the end of the march they'd have uh, reconciliation gatherings and you know uh, leaders church leaders who had previously maybe not even known each other would wash each other's feet yes, as a symbol yeah. of a fellowship or maybe there'd be a, uh, a you know kind of staged reconciliation in different groups of people or racial groups or whatever, um, where there'd be an animosity. Um, acts of mercy and kindness, so many things. Yeah. came come, out of yes. it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But when we look at scripture, Graham, uh, you know, the 
um, the way that God places and positions uh, lead worshippers mm-hmm. uh, in all sorts of situations mm-hmm. is pretty significant. Yeah. And that I remember David Watson, um, he said that he really believed that worship cleared the skies. Yes. It just yes. cleared them. Yeah. And, mm. you know, I, I've been on some uh, marches and it does. Mm. Mm. Just the announcement and the proclamation in, in song and worship, mm. there is something. One of your classics, uh, Graham, um, has to be Shine, Jesus, Shine. Um, what's the story behind that and how did the actual song come together? Well, <clears throat> sometimes I wish it was a more uh, dramatic <laughs> story. <laughs> in, in many ways, the backdrop was what I've been describing, you know, uh, a lively church in London which was pressing on and seeking to reach out and so on. And I remember the theme of of, the, of God's presence, of the the fact that we needed God's presence and you know to to enjoy God's presence we had to repent of our sins and we had to you know live live in a way that God was happy to live among us you know um, at home with us you know and I was thinking about those themes and I wrote those in the course of writing I was writing a lot of songs it was a one of those periods of time I wrote what actually turned out to be the three verses, but without the chorus. Without the chorus, it's almost like a hymn. You know, Lord, the light of your love is shining in the midst of the darkness. Those three verses. And I tried them out at church, and it was kind of underwhelming, shall we say. It was like, hmm, oh, there's another new song, Graham. Thank you. Yes. Um, and I kind of put it away, and I thought, okay, what's... Oh, well, I'll look at it later, and... I think one or two people said, I think that might need a chorus, you know. And eventually the time came, I pulled it out again. And I remember one afternoon in my front room, which I use as an office in uh, southeast London. Yes. Having got that, and, and who knows how these things come, but that phrase, shine, Jesus, shine, yes. popped into my head. And within a fairly short time, I had, I had the chorus. You know, all but a bit of polishing and editing here and there. And then I thought, oh, well, that's good. I'll on to the next song, you know. I mean, I did, I, you know, I did feel that it was good, but not necessarily outstanding among the others. But when we started to use it, that was when yeah. people owned it. Owned it. And, and how powerful and potent it was. I think it caught a moment, you know, the, I think the chorus sums it up, filled this land with the Father's glory. Yeah. And that was the mood in the churches we were thinking, you know, flood the nations with grace and mercy. There was, it was a time of vision and people were saying, yes, these things are possible. It's come out from behind the um, barricades, you know, and take the walls off the church and let's get out there. So it definitely caught a moment um, and express that it moment. It did. No, it certainly did. What would you say, Graham, to anyone um, watching now? Um, you know, they're emerging, hoping to be a worship leader or lead worshipper. Uh, they feel like you're, you did when you were younger as a teenager. Um, you had an ability or a gift to write mm. songs. Mm. What would you say to, to a new generation of emerging worship leaders? 
Well, you, you need to be part of church. Um, forget about trying to build a career. Just serve where you are. Serve the people that you're with. Don't just write your songs. Try to write our songs. Try to express what God is saying in, in the journey that you're on together as part of, part of the local church. You know, be the best you can, develop your skills. Um, and just step by step, um, don't try to leap into some category just because you've seen something on YouTube, you know. Um, uh, but serve where you are. And if God blesses you with songs that go beyond your local church, that's great. If he doesn't, well, he's looking for faithfulness from all of us, isn't he, you know? Um, and uh, not everybody can be that person on the platform. Uh, but to God, it's equally valuable. I think actually the, the superstars in heaven uh, are going to be people we never heard of who yeah. served faithfully with little recognition, with little thanks, maybe none at all. Um, just got on with loving God, serving God. In, in their small corner. And then God will bring them out and saying, oh, look, you know, it's one of my children. And, uh, um, and they would simply obedient and loved me and served me right where they, where they were. Absolutely. Beautiful advice, Graham. So what about for you, Graham, in this uh, next decade of your life? Do, I mean, <laughs> do, you, uh, do you, keep, you keep on writing songs? Yes, yes, I do. I do. I think once you, uh, you know, you've done that so long, you can't, you can't stop doing it. It doesn't mean that you necessarily write songs that everybody's going to sing. But I, um, I'm writing. Uh, I enjoy writing with other writers who are usually more my kids' generation. And that's very stimulating to me. It keeps me on my, my toes. And I try to, to pass on what I've learned, um, share what I know. Uh, I think it's Psalm 78 that talks about, you know, uh, each generation declaring to the next yes. the things that God has, has done and passing on the lessons. So I think that that becomes, you know, important. Um, and actually, I think, you know, people are very hungry for that. They want to know what, how you keep going, you know, <laughs> and um, what God did, because it sparks faith in, in, uh, in, in just to hear the stories can spark faith in people. So, so that's basically what I try to do. God seems to keep me busy, um, what with one thing and another. So as long as he does, I'll try to be faithful. Graham Kendrick, thank you so much. Uh, just wonderful talking to you. Uh, great looking back over what the Lord has done in and through you. And, and I'm sure there are many more decades ahead for a, a few more songs. Thank you, Graham. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Graham Kendrick, I hope you enjoyed that um, conversation and uh, I hope that's inspired you. Uh, it certainly has inspired me. Um, and what a, what a joy we all have to be able to worship the true and living God. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. 
You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.